Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Um, as you're able, please turn to Luke 1, where we'll be in verse 39. The Almighty is going to call us to something today. And by way of demonstrating to me that I haven't arrived at the thing he's going to call us to, last night he uh, used an instrument of sanctification in my life, and it was a six and a half foot tall Christmas tree. Um, so last Sunday we went and cut it down, brought it inside, and we were ready to put the ornaments on. And it's supposed to be a cheerful, happy Christmas thing that your kids will remember for the rest of their lives, and instead it turned out to really get on my nerves uh, because everybody was talking simultaneously and everybody wanted the same ornament at the same time and everybody wanted to hang it on the same branch at the same time. And so eventually I got sinfully angry and basically sent everybody to bed and had to confess to them later on that Daddy is sorry for his... My son is smiling back there because he knows. So I, um, so I, I, I was picturing that as I was sitting here this morning just thinking through one last time what, um, what's here in Luke 1, 39 through uh, 52, or 56, and um, God just impressed upon me, you have not arrived at this thing that is rejoicing. So we're going to hear in a minute what I believe heaven sounds like. You're going to see Mary rejoice ecstatically. You're going to see Elizabeth rejoice about what God has done for her, and that's what's going on right now um, with every dead saint who has gone before us. They are rejoicing in heaven. They're using their mouths for what mouths were made for, and last night I forgot what they were made for. So thank you, Abba Father, for tenderly disciplining me. Uh, Luke 1, in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant, Israel, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So if you'll remember, Zechariah has lost his words. He's lost his ability to speak. And so he does not have the privilege of doing what his wife and Mary do right here. Mary and his wife 
are using their mouths for what mouths were constructed for. When I go, when I take my kids, eventually all six of them, to the orthodontist, because my wife and I both had braces, so that's where my 401k is going. When I take my kids to the orthodontist someday, that guy's going to know how to treat teeth, and he's going to know how to make them straighter. But he doesn't know, unless he's a believer, what mouths were actually made for. They were made for this. This is why that thing that you shave around is there for. This is, this is what it was made for, is to sing songs and to, and to compose words that delight in God. So just by way of introduction, you have a baby jumping for joy in a womb. You have Elizabeth ecstatic to see the mother of her Lord. And then you have Mary saying, summarizing all of it when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So when you read this, I think there's three ways your heart could appropriately react. And my, way, my heart reacted in, in the second of these three ways most of this week. The first is, yes, they get it. They sound like what I sound like. They're saying what I want to say. I have my own way of saying it, but that's how happy God makes me. That's, that's how my heart reacts when I read the word, when I pray, when I hear Pastor Jason sing, when we take Lord's Supper. That's what's going on inside of me. The second way would be, I remember what that can feel like, and maybe I've even felt it recently, maybe as recently as yesterday, but for whatever reason right now, I'm duller than Mary and Elizabeth are. I'm not reacting viscerally with the same just you, you prick me and outpour words of rejoicing in God, but I want to feel that way again in 10 minutes. And the third way would be, I have never felt like that at all. I don't I don't understand how someone could talk about a theoretical God the way these people are talking. I could read these words because they're printed on a page in my Bible, but I have never felt like just saying that of my own volition. Those are three ways that if you're reading this story honestly, you could react. But what you're not supposed to do is go, that Mary, she's something. She's not the point of the story any more than apples were the point of Eden. The point of the story is that God is worth this kind of composition. He's worth this kind of praise. Here in this portion of the story, God himself elicits joy. He springs forth gladness from three hearts, one of whom has not even been born yet. Mary's most loudly. They are all three bearing the fruit that Adam's and Eve's paradise was meant to bear. They are singing the song and declaring the truths that the heavens sing and the earth declares. God is praiseworthy and he should be enjoyed and delighted in and exalted by everyone everywhere. Every single human being right now on earth owes God this kind of rejoicing because he really is that good. He's better than this song can even get at. He is eternally holy and wonderfully beautiful and creative and wise and righteous. His intentions are always good. He's forgiving and long-suffering. He is actually worth this kind of rejoicing. And when we don't rejoice in him that way, like I did not last night, we are in sin because he really is that good. In Eden, this is what it would have meant to be human. I... It's just a weird habit of mine. I read movie reviews. I see like two movies a year, but I'll read like every review that comes out of every movie just because, I don't know, it's just an odd habit of mine that I've developed over the years. And art house movies, dramatic pieces that are usually going to be up for awards, the reviews will always talk about how this movie gets at what it means to be human. And it'll always be describing something terrible, like lust or cowardice or fear or revenge or... And it says that, that this movie really understands what it means to be human. And 
That's not at all what it means to be human. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, what it means to be human is to be crafted by God to enjoy him forever. And by enjoying him, you will glorify him forever. That's what it means to be a human being. That's what my kids were made for. That's what, they, that's what they were knit together in their mother's womb for, is to delight in God. And by delighting in him, they will glorify him. And the world will see, that's what Yahweh is like? That's what the creator God is like? That's what it means to be human, what we see here in Luke 1. Rejoicing, like they do, is Christian joy manifested in the speech and the manner of life and the posture of a person. It is joy verbed, joy expressed. Rejoicing is joy that my kids can see in my face or my body language or hear in my voice as they're sitting across the dinner table from me. It's joy that is visible and audible. You can touch it and hear it and see it. And that's what we were made to be and to do. Rejoicers. All right, so just a couple features of the rejoicing that are here. First, it's Trinitarian. It's Trinitarian. She is not rejoicing in a, a vague God. She is rejoicing, Mary is rejoicing, and Elizabeth, her cousin with her, in the God who is Holy Spirit and Abba Father and the Son, the Logos, the Word, born of a virgin. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and as she's filled with the Holy Spirit, she rejoices in the mother of her Lord, which is the Son. And then as she rejoices in the mother of her Lord and the baby that's in her womb that Mary believed in, Mary then sings to the Almighty, to the Father. So never forget that we are not Unitarian rejoicers. We are not Muslim rejoicers. We are not Jehovah's Witness rejoicers. We are not Mormon rejoicers. We are rejoicing in the God who is Father and Son and Spirit as revealed in the Bible. He has been kind enough to show us in his word that he seals us with the Spirit. He adopts us as our Father. He took on human nature to die for us as the Son. And every time we take Lord's Supper, we are actually picturing the kind of rejoicing that Elizabeth had here. Where she is Spirit inside her, Son in front of her, Father above her. This is vibrant, eternally loving, eternally tri-personal God that we're worshiping. And it's what our songs and our creeds and our confessions and our books of common prayer and our nativity scenes and our nativity plays and our Easter dinners and our bedside prayers are all about. I have like 72 first and middle names in my family. And almost all of them are drawn from that well. I'd have to have a million more kids before it started getting hard because the God that we're rejoicing about is the Holy Spirit who filled this old woman Elizabeth and made her baby leap. He is the infant God-man whose arrival meant the dragon was about to be defanged and head crushed and put to open shame. And he is the Father who sent the Son into the world so that he might ransom harlots and drunks and tax collectors and make them daughters and sons and elders and deacons and brothers and sisters. This is a tri-personal God that elicits, that, that brings forth this kind of singing, this kind of speaking, this kind of rejoicing. We should sit here for a minute with these two women and their two babies and the spirit who's filling Elizabeth and the father who has ordained all of it and is working his good plan of redemption in it. And we should think about the unending width of the God who is father and son and spirit. You and I could plumb those depths for eternity and we would never even scratch the surface of how beautiful it is that God is this God. There is so much to stun our hearts and captivate our minds. In that phrase, Elizabeth pours out, the mother of my Lord. 
One of the earliest controversies in the Christian church was about a word, theotakos. Not theotakos. That would be like God Mexican food. Theotakos, God bearer, mother of God. And the controversy was this. There was a man who said that it was not appropriate to call Mary theotakos, God bearer, but instead that we should call her Christotakos, mother of Christ or Christ bearer. And Nestorius and several other church fathers said, you are losing something essential to our faith if you act as though the baby that is in Mary's womb is anything but the God-man, truly God and truly human. And they had it absolutely right. So we've been talking about that word a lot at my house this week. We don't mean something uh, medieval and Catholic by the word mother of God or Theotokos or God-bearer. What we mean is that the baby that is in Mary's womb is somehow truly human and truly God. And if you think about that for a minute, when you're sitting around the Christmas tree that's lopsided because they put all the ornaments on the right side of the tree, when you're sitting there and you're thinking about this is what we celebrate, we celebrate something that the world out there has no earthly idea how to comprehend, how to compute, because it, it really is mysterious and yet it is really true. Our God took on flesh. Our God became human. This incarnation, this enfleshed God the Son, is what the triune God has done for us. How could you not rejoice in that? How could I not celebrate Christmas with my kids telling them that the creator who crafted each of them and the globe that they're sitting on and that scattered all the stars throughout the heavens the same way they scatter glitter throughout my entire house, that that God who is that creative, that majestic, that, that eternal, that wise, chose to be susceptible to headaches and have fingernails and cry and sleep and suffer thirst and be like us in every way but sin. The God who is Father and Spirit and Son chose to tell this kind of epic. And at its heart, at the heart of the story he's telling, he's still telling right now, will tell unendingly. At the heart of it is our redemption. That's what's going on at Christmas. At least besides last night at my house. All right, another feature of this, it is reasoned rejoicing. So Mary especially, Elizabeth and Mary both, but Mary especially, she doesn't rejoice um, with, without any cause. She's got actual facts, actual truths, actual propositional truths that she is rejoicing in light of. Neither Elizabeth nor Mary is loony. Neither one is some shallow, vapid, giggly optimist. Their joy is coherent. It is grounded in something that is actually true and that is actually worth being happy about. And the first thing is that Mary says in 48, for... For God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. God has looked at her. I reminded Ellie, my oldest, that in all likelihood, Mary was only a few years older than her, less than a decade probably older than my oldest little girl who still sits on my lap and watches Christmas specials. And God shows up in this little town, Nazareth, that nothing good can come from, some, some little village, some rural outpost. God shows up to a, a in all likelihood, a teenage girl in a town nobody will remember and tells her and tells her that she has found favor in his sight and that he is going to make her a central character in the story that he is telling where he saves the world. How could she not rejoice in that? All generations are going to call her blessed as they see rightly, by the way. If you do not see the soul piercings that Mary is going to find out later will happen to her, 
and the sufferings and the trials that come with this story, that come with her calling, then you are not going to see Mary as blessed. But if you see things rightly, if you see them the way God sees them, if you appraise your life and your calling and your vocation and your motherhood and your fatherhood and your unbelieving neighbors you're called to witness to, if you appraise it rightly, if you value it and judge it rightly, you will see that you are blessed if you have been called to the same type of story that Mary has been called into. Mary rejoices because the Messiah has come and because God has chosen her to play a significant part in that coming. So, is that kind of rejoicing present in my life? And I've been thinking about that for a few days, and the answer increasingly, lately, has been yes. But for a good season, it was not. For a good season, um, this isn't in my notes, but I'm just going to, I feel it's appropriate to be transparent with you and the, whoever's watching on Facebook that I don't know. I came home increasingly looking aggrieved because I had to be at work all day for you people. And then I come home and there's diapers to change and there's stuff everywhere and trash has to be taken out. And why do we throw away so much? It's like 30 trash cans outside our house. And instead of rejoicing in what I had been called to, which is six souls that God crafted and knit together and then said, here, you and Sarah, raise them in the fear and admonition of me. And you teach them the ways that they should observe. And they will not depart from them. And you will get to bear the fruits and see the fruits of your holy faith in their lives. And I gave you a good-looking wife who you love. Today's my anniversary, 12 years. I gave you, thanks. I gave you all of that. I gave you all of that, Wade. And then I send you to work where you get to work with mostly unbelievers and you can, you can just say things, like when they talk about somebody in their family being sick, you can just say, what's his name? I'll pray for him. But instead, you act irritated there, then you act irritated on your drive home, and then you act irritated when you walk in the door. And so I had to repent. I had to confess about my attitude, about my posture in life. Because God has actually given me a wonderful calling. And he's, if you are a Christian, he has given you a wonderful calling. The unbelieving neighbors that you have, the unbelieving coworkers that you have, the unbelieving children that you raise and spank and change diapers for over and over again. There's like always a diaper that needs changed at my house, always. All of that is God's gift to you, his calling to you. And I realize that it may seem to us from a distance that, of course, Mary could rejoice this way about her calling. It was delivered. It was hand-delivered by an angel. And mine's not like that. But that's, that's really calloused and thoughtless. The reality is Mary, in all likelihood, knew there was going to be suffering involved here. She, she might lose her husband. Joseph might divorce her, might put her away. She probably knew that she was not going to have a whole lot of resources to help raise this baby. And if she's a, a true believer, she would have known that, that following the Lord is always going to involve some measure of cost. And yet she rejoices, and so should I. That brand of joy should come out of my lips and out of my heart because God has given me a wonderful calling. The second thing, she, the second propositional truth here in her reasoned rejoicing, she says, for he who, is, he who is mighty has done, past tense, that's interesting, he who is mighty has done great things for me. This is a God of verbs. This is a God of action. So this is not a God of just mere good intentions. And I should, like Mary, 
does. I should trust in his power to scatter the proud and raise up the humble, to grant us new heavens and a new earth to rock them under someday. And I should trust that he is strong enough to do everything his Bible says he will do by the end. This is the kind of happy, cheerful, joyful trust you see in David. So we all know this David, the story of David if you've grown up in the church where he walks down into the valley of Elah and there's this nine-foot-tall giant and the nine-foot-tall giant says he's going to kill him and David ends up winning the battle. Spoiler alert if you haven't read 1 Samuel. But one of the things when you read that slowly and you read it to your kids or somebody who hasn't heard it before or somebody who doesn't know it as well, one of the things that's striking is how little fear David seems to, to feel. He walks down there joyfully, it seems like. I can just picture him skipping down, down into the valley while all these other grown professional soldiers have their knees knocking. And he knows, he knows that God is going to hand over this giant to him because he knows his God acts. David is not a deist. David is not praying in some theoretical God up there who set the world in motion and then stepped back and let our free will determine the rest of the story. David knows my God will hand me that Philistine. You guys may not know it, but I do. And so when I come down into this valley, I'm not alone. He acts. David has that kind of faith. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. One of my son's names comes from this story. Abednego's Hebrew name was Azariah. His Babylonian name is Abednego. But these three men, they're standing there in front of their king. And their king says, will you not bow down to my giant golden idol? And they say, no, our God can deliver us. And then there's that beautiful sentiment that they give. And if he doesn't, we still will not bow. But that first part is important. They do believe that their God can actually deliver them from a real fiery furnace, a real instrument of execution that's in front of them. When you believe that God acts like Mary does, it fuels your joy. She trusts that her God has done all of these things in verses 51, 52, and 53, that he has done them through the action in verses 54 and 55. And the action in 54 through 55 is that you made a promise, God. You made a promise that you would bless the world through Abraham's seed. 2,000 years before Mary, you made a promise that you would bless the world through the seed of Abraham, and you're doing it. And that seed is now in my womb. You have shown your strong hand in scattering the proud. You have brought down the enthroned and mighty. You have exalted the humble. You have filled the hungry with good things. You have sent the rich away empty. And now Mary is rejoicing in what God has done through this Emmanuel in her womb. So when I read verses 51 through 53, is that how I see Jesus? Because that's what she's describing. She's describing the accomplishments and the ministry of Jesus the Messiah. He's shown strength with his arms, scattering the proud, bringing down the mighty, exalting those of humble estate, filling the hungry with good things. Do I see Jesus as having done that? Because the reality is, is that in God, in Jesus, God has shown the impotence of anything else we could rely on. There are people still to this day who rely on their riches and their fame and their influence and their full pantries as though that's going to make them happy and that's going to offer salvation, and it doesn't. In Jesus, we are shown that all of that stuff is futile when it comes to being made right with God and being eternally joyful. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 18, Paul makes this point. As for the rich, he's talking to the pastor Timothy in Ephesus. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Anybody who watches their 401k on a weekly basis could underline that word uncertainty with gusto. 
but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. Those Christians who are rich in verse 18 are to do good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. And then in verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. What future? Their retirement? A vacation home? The future he's talking about is the world to come so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Not a retirement, not a vacation home, but the world to come. In Jesus, in Jesus, and Mary already knows this in advance because she is that faithful and she knows her Bible that well and because she's a virtuous young woman, she's a Proverbs 31 woman. In Jesus, we are shown that riches cannot do what they always claim they can do. And we should rejoice in this. In a world where everyone is trying to prop themselves up, where everyone is nursing proud thoughts, where everyone is trying to self-justify, that's what TikTok is, right? I've never been on it, really, but it's a self, not for Alex, but it's a self-justification tool. So I can show you how good-looking I am or how much I sing. We were watching the Thanksgiving Day Parade, and a guy's on a float singing a song. I've never heard of him. Underneath his name, the description is TikTok sensation. I'm like, what is that? That's a thing, apparently? We are all trying to self-justify, and in Christ, we have all been scattered. We have all been laid low. We have all been shown to be totally incapable of raising ourselves up to God, no matter how high our earthly thrones rise. We are unable to purchase our own salvation, regardless of how rich we are. Jeff Bezos can't purchase his salvation any more than you can. We come to him with nothing to offer, and in this Messiah, he offers us everything. You are hungry, and so am I. We are born hungry. And if we hunger and thirst for righteousness in this Messiah, if we hunger and thirst for God Almighty in this Messiah, we can be filled. Those who love their thrones unto death and refuse to bow their knees to this king will end up as angry and as dead as Herod the Great and Herod Antipas and Herod Agrippa. Three Herods told in your New Testament through the Gospels and through the book of Acts. And all of them are dead and buried and forgotten except in the story of God. And the reason is because they refuse to give up their thrones. And they refuse to give up their lusting and their thirsting after earthly treasures, which are always flimsy. We've been reading Confessions by Augustine at my house. And one of the most beautiful and touching parts of that story is how Augustine describes giving up on everything that this world was telling him he should live for. At first it's wisdom, and then it's riches, and then throughout all of it it's sex. And by the end, he, he describes that he has been bruised and beaten and scratched inside his own soul as he has warred with the idea that maybe, just maybe, the trinkets, the little, the little Chuck E. Cheese toys that this world offers him can make him happy. And by the end, he just throws himself down on the ground and says, they can't, I'm miserable. And I see old ladies and little kids who are going to church to hear Ambrose, the great Ambrose, preach, and they seem happy and content. And here I am with as much as Rome could offer, a high roller in the Roman Empire, and I'm miserable, so I give up. It's at that moment he knows what Mary knows, that this, this Christ, this God, can satisfy. And then the third reason that she gives in her reasoned rejoicing is that God has remembered his promised mercy. She's essentially saying, my God told the old man Abraham that he took out of Ur that through his offspring the world would be blessed. And here I am, insignificant, unknown, far from being rich, far from Herod's palace, far from his throne, and yet now that most high God has overshadowed me and put his son in my womb. 
The son who will drag down the pretender thrones and reign over the house of God's people forever and ever and ever and ever. He has helped us because he said he would. Which, by the way, is why Herod the Great wants him dead. Because Herod the Great knows what Mary knows. He is going to reign over the house of David. I should learn, and you should learn, and by God's grace, I want every one of my children to learn, to rejoice in those three words, because he said. Mary is delighting in the fact that God made a promise to Abraham, and he has kept it, and he always keeps his promises. Learn to sing those three words over every fear, to fill up your mouth with cheerful laughter in the face of every trial, with because he said. This is the punch that faith packs. If you tell me a promise of God for me, I can rejoice over it with the certainty that I rejoice over my tax return the day after it's deposited. Mary knows the son in her womb will be on the throne of his father, David, and will reign over Jacob's descendants and his kingdom, world without end. She knows it because God said so. She knows it because God spoke it, and that check never bounces. Faith, this kind of faith, this trust that God will do what he said he would, is the soil for Christian joy. Christian joy, which Mary and Elizabeth are experiencing, and with, which John the Baptist in utero is experiencing, grows in this kind of soil. It bears fruit and strength, strengthens its roots in this kind of soil. Trust in God, faith in the Almighty. There is nothing to rejoice in if I don't trust God and his promises. If I have hope in this life only, I as a Christian am, am of all men to be most pitied. In that case, let me eat and drink, for tomorrow I die. Let me tear down my barns and build bigger ones and get from this world what I can. But if God has spoken what we read here, if he truly is the one who made all we see and all we don't see, if he is the one who is truly in control of everything, and if he is really this kind and this forgiving and this devoted to rescuing and adopting human beings, and if his promises are this certain, more certain than gravity or nuclear forces or the quadratic formula, if his promises are this certain, then my joy can be irrepressible, inexhaustible, out loud, and unapologetic the way Mary's is. For all I know, there were unbelieving neighbors watching her sing this, and she doesn't care if they are. Because her joy is in a God who keeps his promises and it just pours out of her. If God is who he says he is and always keeps his promises, then Christian rejoicing can be the family song at the Thomas house. We can know where we're going and what we're about. We can know what our place in the world is every bit as much as these two women and the baby did. Why do we refuse to grieve like those who have no hope? Why will we never be silent about the goodness of God and Jesus Christ? Why do we sing hymns and forgive each other and confess sins? Why do we go to church on the Lord's Day? Why do we take Lord's Supper? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do we celebrate births? Because this is who God is and because he said what he said as he spoke to our fathers. Mary's heart does not delight in some vague force, but in this God with this holy name and this character and this plan for history, Yahweh, the God who is mighty to save, and the Jesus Christ who has put lowly people like us on thrones with him. All right, one last characteristic and then just address some objections before I close. It's shared rejoicing. Mary and Elizabeth rejoice together. There's a feedback loop that happens with rejoicing. When you are a Christian, and you speak about and sing about and pray about who God is, and your heart, you feel it rising up with joy and delight and hope, and somebody else is sharing that with you. And they say, yeah, I know, that's what, God's been doing something similar for me. Or I remember when God did something similar for me. Or I've been praying and hoping that God would do something like that for me. 
you, you find that that fire gets brighter and burns hotter between you. You kindle each other. It goes from the baby who leaps to Elizabeth who feels the leaping to her cousin Mary who hears what comes out of Elizabeth's mouth. Do our houses have this kind of contagion circulating in them? Are we feeding each other's rejoicing in God? There are some families, believe it or not, I know it's none of ours, who feed on drama and gossip or political talk or sports talk. Let's not do that. It's fine. My son and I watched the UC game last night. It was great. But that's not what the whole night was about, and that's not what I want all our conversations about. I would like our family to have this kind of aroma, this kind of scent to it, where we're all rejoicing in God, where my kids hear me read the Bible or pray or talk about our Lord and have their hearts burn within their chests, where my wife hears me explain the word to our family and she rejoices in Jesus. In verse 56, it says, Mary remained with her about three months. Don't jump past that. Why? Luke doesn't actually tell you, except I think he does. I think she stayed with her because she was her kindred heart. I don't know that Mary would have stayed with Elizabeth had Elizabeth not reacted the same way that Mary had reacted, and had they not shared that deep cord of joy in God, but they did. So why would she go anywhere else? There is a depth, a bond, a brotherhood, a sisterhood that Christian rejoicing imparts that lesser friendship material does not. I have shallow friendships, and they're fine for what they are. We can make small talk about college football or Bitcoin or Dogecoin or whatever. We can, we can, we can talk about things that, you know, are kind of important, but it only can go so far and that's not the person I'm going to call when my world collapses, and it's not the person I'm going to call when I'm, I'm super excited about something that God has done, because we don't have something deeper. We don't have something more profound. But this kind of rejoicing, it does actually make friendships and relationships deeper. It bonds. It strengthens loyalty. Families, Christian families that rejoice like this, they are bonded. The loyalty is unforced. They don't, they don't call their parents when they're grown-ups because they have to. They call them because they want to. I call my father on the weekends because I want to hear his voice and I want to tell him about what God's done for me because my father was always joyful in Christ. And so now that loyalty that I have for him is, is like diamond hard. But I've also seen Christian families where there's a morose spirit, where there's complaining and strife and bitterness and despair, hopeless despair, and loyalty just disintegrates. Mary would not have stayed for three months, I believe, if she had gone here and Elizabeth had been like, yeah, well, that's great for you. You're probably going to have more kids, and I'm stuck with just one because I'm 60 years old. But that rejoicing that they shared made this bond something that they are probably experiencing through eternity. Bonds that are fed on Christian joy, family trees that are nourished by this sap are stronger and more fruitful, and they bear what human relationships were intended to bear. This is what Eden would have felt like only a million times more. No sin, no suffering, no, no, no cause for complaining, or false cause for complaining, only joy. All right, I'll close with some objections. I've got two. And the one is one that I thought of, because it was my objection. I go to a park on my lunch break at work, and that's where I... <clears throat> That's where I read this and did most of the prep and tried to think through what this passage is saying. Summit Park in Blue Ash, if anybody knows that one. Do you ever see a 2002 brown 
Toyota Sienna with my son's name carved into the passenger side door. That's me. Yeah. I couldn't spank him because he also carved three crosses into the hood. So now I just use it as evangelism. As I was sitting there, I had had a, 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 a piercing, a hot moment of pain that doesn't really matter what, but Monday or Tuesday, and as I was sitting there, I was thinking, what would my objection be right now to this? Why am I not rejoicing? Why am I not feeling what Mary's feeling and Elizabeth is feeling? And my answer was that I was suffering. I was in pain. I was, I was angry, and I was afraid, and that suffering was, I thought, preventing my rejoicing. And so I want to undermine that objection, if that's you, or if it's been you, or if it's going to be you again. One of the rejoicers here, <clears throat> the baby, is going to end up in a jail cell where he's awaiting his execution at the hand of a shallow, petty woman and her daughter and a thug of a king, and he's going to get beheaded. And if I had gone to John the Baptist in that jail cell and told him this story because I'd read it in the Bible, I don't think he would have said, yeah, well, that was then. Now I see what the world's really like. So I would not be jumping for joy now. And I don't think Paul, who wrote Philippians, which we went through a couple of weeks ago, and is a joyful letter of great encouragement and hope and cheer. I don't think if I had gone to Paul's jail cell after he wrote 2 Timothy and was awaiting his execution and said, do you still feel the way in Philippians? He'd have been like, no, no. Now I've seen how things really work. I don't think their suffering disproved their rejoicing. And if it didn't disprove theirs, then there's something broken or cracked, or disobedient, or unfaithful in my heart when I think my suffering is allowed to preclude rejoicing. So as I was sitting there and examining that and thinking that through, here's where I landed. I think there is a kind of rejoicing that stands in the midst of the hurricane. I'm going I'm to prove what I'm about to say from Scripture. But there is a kind of rejoicing that stands in the midst of the hurricane and actually puts its roots down deeper and deeper and deeper when the winds are high. And that is what we are aiming for as Christians, because unless you're going to die tomorrow, you are not done suffering. I am not done suffering. One of the prayers I have for my kids is that God would sustain them in the midst of their suffering, because they're going, to, they're going to experience suffering I can't even imagine. It's hard to envision as a father. It's hard to prepare for my own. It's hard to prepare for my wife's. What if I die and something terrible happens to her after I'm gone? We just had a friend whose young 30-something wife died. And the father, who's an unbeliever, the mother was a believer, is now trying to piece his life together with his believing son. Suffering is all over this world because of Genesis 3. And if I go through life thinking that suffering exempts me from rejoicing, I will never be Mary and Elizabeth ever again because, I'll show you this in a moment, Elizabeth's rejoicing here came after decades of suffering. Elizabeth herself is actually a window worth looking into to see this kind of sturdy joy. In verse 25 of chapter 1, Elizabeth says it this way, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. She's not bitter. That's not self-pity talking. She is speaking factually that for all of my adulthood I have been held in reproach. I've been gossiped about probably. I've been looked on as a lesser Christian who must have done, a lesser follower of God who must have done something to bring about this childlessness. I am, am icky 
I have cooties that nobody wants to touch, and I have been treated that way for my entire adulthood. She's suffered anguish, heartache, but before that pain is taken away, before it's taken away, we're actually told that she had walked in the ways of the Lord. Verse 6 says, they, her and Zechariah, her husband, were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So in the midst of her suffering, she is still observing the commandments of God, which Jesus tells us are loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So we know that that's what she was doing, that's what she was like in the midst of her suffering. Elizabeth was not cold to the Lord. She was not paralyzed by pain. She was walking in love of God and love of neighbor, blamelessly serving him night and day. And then when he visited her with this gift, the rejoicing words we read spring out of that kind of tree that has grown in her because she was walking in the ways of the Lord. The Christian joy that I'm aiming for and have not yet gotten at Though by God's grace, I'm closer than I was when I was in my early 20s. The Christian joy we're aiming for is not a fragile plant that can only grow in the absence of suffering and can only bear fruit when the thermostat and the humidity in the greenhouse are just right. When our 2.5 kids are all showing us their perfect 2.5 report cards and the kitchen's been remodeled and the house has been deep cleaned and our raise kicks in on Monday. If we can only rejoice when all the boxes are checked, when everything is just so, we'll never rejoice. So from scripture, let me show you what I'm saying. Romans 5, in just a moment and we'll close. Romans 5, Paul says this, verses two through five. Through him, through the baby that was in Mary's womb, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Fine, Paul, you rejoice. Everything's great for you. You're rejoicing. That's great. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Not because we're sadomasochists. We just like pain for pain's sake. But because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that is exactly what happened in Elizabeth. If God had not produced this kind of Elizabeth with this kind of heart through her suffering and through the reproach of her people, then she might have reacted to this gift with anxiety. Oh my gosh, I finally have a baby. It's been for, I mean, what do I do? Oh, I don't want to lose the baby. What if I, I'll never have another chance? I, I should just make sure that I eat all the right foods and see all the right doctors and do everything just right because otherwise God might take it away. Or anger. Finally, now you give me a baby at the end. I'm probably going to die before this kid even becomes an adult. What took you so long? But that's not how she reacts. She reacts with joy because through her suffering, God has yielded this kind of hope. He is that kind of God. If you are a Christian, if I am a Christian, I have that kind of suffering. It is shaped and scored by a good carpenter. It's fitted. It will notch into my future self that's presented without spot to the Lord on the last day. My suffering is designed, and so is yours. And the other objection I don't delight in God like this. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, 
My call to you is to come to Christ. In John 15, he tells his disciples, I've spoken these words about keeping my commandments that your joy may be full. Come back to the Lord, keep his commandments, walk in obedience to him, and he wants to gift you joy. It's not a, it's not a, a mission that he's hanging over your head and you have to reach up and grab by your own exertion and your own moral efforts. It's a gift he wants to give you. Come back to him, pray to him, ask him. If you're a non-Christian and you've never felt like this, my words to you are John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. They're our Lord's words. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. All that the So he's talking to unbelievers here. He's talking to you if you have never believed in Christ Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. The Father's will for the Son is that he should lose nothing of all that he has given him, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, Jesus says, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you are an unbeliever, that is my call to you because it's our Lord's call to you, to believe in the Lord Jesus. Please pray with me. Father, I thank you for the privilege of hearing your word, of celebrating your ordinances, of singing hymns and spiritual songs, of being brothers and sisters with other men and women who you have saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And I thank you for the hope that is nested inside our hearts as Christians, that everything that happens to us in this life will work together for our good and for your glory, and that in the end we will be presented to the Father because of the perfect life and sacrificial death and holy and triumphant resurrection of the baby, the God-man who was in Mary's womb. Truly God and truly man, he will reign over the world. His kingdom will have no end. We celebrate in him. In Jesus' name.